Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 5 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk geo. Okay, let's do the news on the 17th of March 2021. The big kind of news that's floating around our industry at the moment, notice I don't say sector there, (laughs) um, is I sort of think there's a new job sort of type being created, which is we've gone from a specialist business development manager, salesperson, and now in the EO sphere, there is definitely the space for a, an understanding of the ecosystem of the business itself person or persons. And that person sadly isn't me. <laughs> Are we gamely going to try and explain business operations on the podcast now? But I, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel that it would be pretty remiss. I often say this, don't I? Pretty remiss to not mention SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, then you're welcome to join my club of people who who don't really know what's going on. But essentially, and I'm going to get this horribly wrong in all sorts of places, we've got a shell company created by investors, phenomenal terms and conditions, effectively an empty company that has the sole aim of acquiring another company in order to take it public. Now, if that makes sense to you, then... I'd love to have you come on the podcast and and, and explain it in, in more detail to me. And I think I probably would follow along for the main. It seems, again, that this is all of a sudden, bang, exploded. Um, these aren't new ideas, apparently, the new financial instruments, if, that, if that's the way. But we've got companies like Black Sky and Rocket Lab and, of course, Spire. These have all used this mechanism or have been acquired and brought public by these shell companies. I guess the reason is, and I think guess is the right right <laughs> word here, we're operating in an industry that has low margins with high revenue. So it's very expensive to create a satellite launching company. It needs a heck of a lot of funding. I puzzle over this idea of what's next. Lots of venture capital has gone in. We've talked about it a lot on, on podcasts and, and, and with people. And eventually the common presumption is that these investors are going to want to get their money back and not everyone's going to get their money back or some people are going to be big winners and some people may not be such big winners but one thing that does make this kind of interesting is that there's been so few big publicly floated space type companies it'd be interesting to see how the market deals with these things and how it values them and how it judges you know key events like new launches or new products coming to market and, and how that reflects in its in its company value and, it, and its share price. Right. So I realise you're probably not the person to ask, but why? If you've got venture capitalists pumping money into company A to, in order to make it successful, why don't they then just make company A public? Why are these venture capitalists creating a shell company to acquire it, to take it public? Your point's well made. I'm I'm also sure that there's a quite a coherent and clear answer to that question. Yeah. But because we don't really operate in that domain, we can only speculate, and that's, that's pretty pointless, isn't it? We've got a trend and a, a thing that's bringing these companies into in, into public ownership um, from private ownership, and it, it's giving us a sense of, of where this end game may be. 
what the next steps are because we had the explosion of technology we had all these startups spinning out now these are businesses and at some point they've got to mature that's cool it's really good that you've raised it as well because it's a whole area related to earth observation that is having an impact Cool. So I'm going to change one letter in that acronym and talk about Stack. <laughs> Stack 1.0 Release Candidate 1 is now available. And there's a Medium post that uh, I will put the link in the show notes to, where Chris Holmes basically explains what's happening there and that this is a, a really critical release. I'm just going to read out something that's in his post because I think it's really important. If you have implemented stack in the past please take the time to upgrade your software or catalog to the latest specification our aim is to sprint for the next few weeks to upgrade as many implementations as possible to validate for the final release the nature of a release candidate means that if any implementations find problems in the specification we will make another release candidate and give it a couple of weeks for feedback doing so until we iron out all the issues So the reason I wanted to read that out specifically is because I think that is a call for people who listen to this podcast and work with Stack or have uh, catalogs that they want to move into Stack to really get involved with the project and to have a a major, major input into how it evolves into the 1.0 release. Um, I wanted to sort of mention news as news. Okay. And it's kind of general call to say one of the things that both myself and Alistair feel quite sort of passionately about is to try and get a broadest look across what's going on in the industry that that we work in and I do feel sometimes that we end up becoming a bit of an echo chamber that our news filters into someone else's news that that then we report on them reporting on our news and and then I don't really feel that's very beneficial to 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 you the listener so if you if you feel that we're missing something glaring or something obvious, then I would love you to um, get in contact with us on, on the usual means of, of communication. And in this podcast, this time around, we're actually sort of trying to broaden our horizons a bit by looking outside of our sort of usual areas of operation, you know, being Europe and, and North America. That's definitely a, an area of our focus, I think, for the next year or so. Yeah, good call. That being said, end of March, um, end of Q1, as ever, Loads of updates happen, whether it be Geopandas, that's got a new release. GDAL's got some stuff coming out shapely. But one of the things that caught my eye, and quite often with these changes, they're sort of quite nuanced. GDAL has now adapted this write array. So previously, if you, if you were writing um, NumPy arrays to a GDAL data set, it worked fine, but it would work on a single band at a single time. So you'd have to iterate over those bands. It now supports writing to all bands at the same time. And for, for someone like me, that's an incremental jump and i find that yeah that's you know, a big change yeah, yeah. and if, if you're familiar with that sort of side of things you might you know that's the kind of thing that you may you may miss that's quite useful to know my next piece of news it's not really news it's more of a thank you really i posted something on the at eocene from twitter account i just posted is earth observation data processing diverging those that use earth engine and those that don't and i hashtagged it with eochat and to be honest, I thought nothing more of it. And then suddenly my phone started pinging away and I was thinking, oh, what have I done? What have I done? But it's absolutely brilliant. The conversation that has arisen from that tweet has absolutely blown me away. I am really humbled by it. It's, it's absolutely great that people have got involved. And I just want to thank you for a fascinating and informative and 
moreover, a polite discussion on Twitter about the impact of Earth Engine and how it can help with teaching and how some people think that open source is better and some people think that actually for getting students up and running, it's much better to use Earth Engine. And for something that for me was just a small tweet of a sort of musing whilst having a cup of tea to to have spawned this, I I am yeah blown away. It's, it's been absolutely brilliant reading all of your responses. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, and the final thing for me is BBC.com com they have this future series and sometimes they featured satellites in the past uh, but this one caught my eye because it was about farming ag- and, and agriculture and something that i think i think we're a little bit disingenuous to i just want to sort of point you at this direction that there are some really good case studies out there and when big organizations like the bbc and and, and other media organizations pick up this is how our industry is being reflected onto the wider world so it's something i'm quite keen to follow it's a fascinating article if you're interested in knowing more about agriculture applications this is a good high level sort of case study cool i think that's it for the news okay okay we have an interesting lineup today for our interview segment uh, phoebe representing afrigio and angelica representing amerigio before we get into what those organizations are maybe you can introduce yourself so phoebe maybe you want to go first uh, yes. Hi, everybody. My name is Phoebe Odora. I represent the AfriGeo Secretariat as the point of contact. What AfriGeo does is to strengthen collaborations within Africa. We look at how we can be able to advocate for use of Earth observation within member countries for decision-making processes. And through this, we are able to pull in new member countries. In the last one or two years, we've brought in three countries to join the geo community. And ideally, um, through use of Earth observation, we're addressing different needs like uh, disaster risk management. We're also looking at ways of how we can bring in women and youth and try to make sure that they too are brought in the conversation of Earth observation. So for the youth, we're doing this through different forums, what we call the Space Challenge and, and youth engagement. And we're also providing hackathons. And last year, we partnered um, with Savir to be able to do the hackathon in Uganda for the desert local situation that was in East Africa. And we also have the annual symposium, which is a good opportunity for us to share uh, what um, different uh, member countries are doing in the region and the support we are doing for the working group. So basically within the working group, we have different thematic areas where the communities of practice come together to address specific issues and see how those challenges can be able to be addressed. And Angelica, maybe you can tell us a bit about who you are as well. I am Angelica Gutierrez and I work for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in the United States, NOAA. I am one of the co-chairs for AmeriGeo, Peru, and Chile are my other two co-chairs. Oh, cool. Already there are questions about (laughs) about that, the fact that there are co-chairs and things. That's really cool. Can I ask, what is GEO? And are you able to give our listeners an understanding of the sort of number of organizations or the number of people involved maybe in GEO activities? So GEO is actually a partnership of more than... 105, 110 national governments, but also there are more than 100 participant organizations and a new category is called the associates. So those are more of the commercial entities. We envision a a future where the observations are actually guiding the decision-making process in at all levels, not only at the national, but also at the local and regional and global level. 
Phoebe, maybe I can ask you then, as point of contact for the Secretariat, what is it that the Secretariat actually does for AFRIGEO? AFRIGEO is actually a network of, of all the member countries within GEO. We, we have like the AFRIGEO Secretariat that has different members. So we have representation in different regions. And as a Secretariat, our role is to coordinate all these countries and ensure that we are all responding to the same objective as far as GEO is concerned and making sure that what GEO is working on is representative of, of, of our national priorities as members of GEO. Right, just so I get this clear, because I, I have been known to get things wrong quite often. Angelica, are you part of the Secretariat of Amerigio, or is it a slightly different structure to AfriGeo? Amerigio is actually the regional geo in the Americas, and it was created by the geo principles, which are part of the Americas caucus. It was created in 2014, and uh, with very specific objectives. The first one was actually that the regional geo will reflect or all the activities will reflect the interest at the local, national and regional level of the country members, of course, that the activities should be entrenched in the already institutional and technical capabilities of the country members. And, and the third objective was that Amerigio should seek to increase the institutional as well as the personal capacity in the use of earth observations so that the decision-making process could be influenced by, by the knowledge of the observations. Early last year, 2020, I was really lucky to be working on a project around GOLDN and that sort of thing, so land degradation neutrality. And I got to talk to a whole bunch of people involved in that area from around the world, and that was really fascinating to me. The work that you do day to day, does that feed into the types of project that GEO is involved in? So things around, say, the SDGs and, and that type of thing? I work for RCMRD and uh, as a regional organization, we represent 20 member countries. And our role for the member countries is to provide geospatial allied services. So my role on a day-to-day -day basis is to support activities related to land use, land cover mapping. And this fits in with the objectives of GEO in that we, we, we're trying to given one of the indicators that is used to support land degradation measurements. So land cover being the one that uh, gives the indication on productivity and things like that. As an institution, we mostly deal with earth observation data, so provide services related to earth observation utility and ensure that uh, this is actually being used to address different needs for member states, whether in agriculture and food security, in land cover, in urban mapping, in uh, disaster risk, in water and related disasters. Does the majority of the guidance in terms of the types of thing that you need to respond to come from the UN? Or like, if there was a, a regional or even a, a country-specific problem and they were a GEO member, can they also bring work to you or, or problems to you that you can then solve on behalf of them that might help other GEO members in your region? Uh, yes. So the way, the way we address our issues, most of them are tied to national needs. We also address them tied to regional needs as well as the SDGs, which is more or less like an international priority. In the case for, for, for water resource management, right now we, we're handling a case for Malawi 
where they need to get better information on, on stream flow, basically for water resource management. So in this case, we're tying in the national, uh, national request to what we can be able to get from GEO. And one of the initiatives that have really come close to addressing this need is GeoGloss. And uh, through GeoGloss, we are using uh, what is already output as, as uh, streamflow information. And particularly for African countries, the scarcity of data makes it really difficult for us to get continuous streamflow information. So with the little information we get, then we are able to do a bias correction, which gives us a, a basis to get continuous uh, information for a particular long period of time. So we get trend data for that particular uh, stream, and then we're able to model it for the entire basin. So we're doing this for 28 river basins in Malawi, and already this is just one country that is already benefiting, but we have replicated the same in other countries. Angelica, do you get to then maybe interact with different regional geos around the world? So GeoGloss is actually the initiative where the objective is to ensure that those elements are in place for, for user-driven solutions to address water issues. One of the most important, uh, or perhaps the, the largest project within GeoGloss is uh, the GeoGloss ECMWF Streamflow Service, which Phoebe was talking before. And in the Americas, we have two countries in South America who have been already implementing the system, Colombia and Peru. And in Colombia, for example, is already including um, the use of the system within the national effort. So uh, they can adapt the, the system to address the needs. In Peru, the system is actually a complement to the national effort that they already had there. So in, in the case of Peru, is sort of a second set of information that, that they can use in Central America, we work with the Committee for Hydraulic Resources. Uh, that is part of the system of integration for Central America, SICA. And there, there are eight countries participating uh, at this committee. We have provided several training courses. And the HydroMed services are using the system there. We actually, in Honduras, work with the National Electric Power Company who uses the GeoGloss Hydro's forecasting system to determine reservoir levels and management measures during hurricanes and other, you know, environmental events. So many sort of ways we could take this, but I'm, I'm sort of interested in what you think the biggest challenges that you currently face. So, for, for example, getting access to the data, communication with others that are not particularly familiar with the data. It almost always comes back down to the data. Our eyes sometimes are just not on South America and Asia and Africa. And I think that's a massive failing. But I'm really interested to know if you have the same sort of pain points that we have, but what do you think are the sort of biggest challenges that, that you face today? Is it the data? In 2016, we had basically two countries, United States and Canada, that had open data policies and that were part of the GEOs. Today, we have 21 countries practicing in, in our region, practicing with open data, public policies already implemented. So that's amazing. You know, the growth is incredible, isn't it? It is. I don't take the credit completely or we don't take the credit completely because it is actually a, a combination of, of several factors going on. Yes, the need for, for data in many different areas is actually pushing the countries to realize that the open data 
policies are benefiting their local communities. Yes, through the AmeriGeos platform, actually, we, as I said, we are connected to 21 open data platforms in the region. We went from 120,000 data sets in 2016 to more than 100 million granules of data over 120,000 geospatial services connected today. So, for example, GeoSUR, which is one of the very important regional activities in our region, they had about 17,000 assets in 2016-17. AmeriGeo increased that to 448,000 assets just by connecting to the open data platforms. For us, it has been an evolution with outreach activities, but I feel that our, our region is actually evolving and progressing at a very fast speed. We have always had this conversation for data democratization, at least in every AFRIGEO symposium. We're always talking about every it. Every meeting. <laughs> every meeting we're talking about it. And, and we're really trying to make sure that data that can be made open, we, 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 we advocate for that. However, when we make data open, then we are frustrating the private sector parties. So we also have to look at which ways do we ensure that even as we're making everything open, they still have a benefit towards is selling data and creating data. So that, that is an issue. Then uh, we've had the same conversations at national government level where you find the same government is buying the same, same data for different projects. So some governments are winning it and we are advocating for the spatial data infrastructure even within countries. But in other cases, it's still a conversation that we still have to continue having. At the same time, we we take advantage of things like uh, regional data cube. And uh, we thank God for the Digital Africa program that is really trying to look at this way of how do we put in all the data that is required in a, in a format that is analysis ready. So they have created the cube um, and is accessible right now. The Sentinel one and two data is already there and it's really data that can be accessed and it's analysis ready. At the same time, they're also looking at, yes, we have the data, what applications can we start building off the data cube so that people can already start making decisions from the data cube itself. And this has been really useful. The need that they're trying to address is the food security challenge all over Africa through provision of crop mass. So through this, they've been able to partner with GeoGlam, which uh, my organization has been supporting, uh, where we're developing crop masks and Digital Earth Africa will be taking this part because the, the, crop, the crop monitors that we're doing is more or less at national scale. So with Digital Earth Africa, there'll be opportunity to, to have that for the whole of Africa. It's like you're working in the same office as I am. Organizations buying the same data twice it seems to be ubiquitous across the world. Um, you talked a lot about data. Is there sort of a quality thing that, that you've got built in or is it really more fine grained than that? In, in the case of, you know, the 21 countries of open data that I yep. was talking before, it happens that we have the same technology to connect. We are this year working actually with the Open Geospatial Consortium through the different pilots focused on disaster and health and so forth. And one of the objectives there is actually the implementation or at least to talk about uh, standards. So for this year, we are again participating in those in, in the pilots in the region and sort of bringing our geo country members to talk about the same thing. 
not only quality of data, but also standards. So that's the conversation that is happening now in our region. I want to highlight actually something really important that happened to Amerigio last year. We had the America Symposium in collaboration with UNGGIM Americas. And the objective there was to establish a conversation between the two organizations, specifically about the integration of data. In 2020, we signed the Aguascalientes Declaration, which was a major step forward for our region because UNGGIM Americas is UN organization. We are a geo organization. Out of that, there were very specific objectives so at this moment, we actually have three different groups working on the writing of a joint action plan. The three working groups are for capacity development, for communication, cooperation, and coordination. And the third one is uh, writing about a strategy for data information and knowledge sharing. I think we've just sort of grazed the surface of, yeah. of both organizations. So do, do you have any sort of pointers for people to go and find out more information like websites or twitter accounts or stuff like that we're currently hosted through the geo portal when you get to the geo portal then you can get to the work program for Africa and see the list of activities that we're supporting okay fantastic we'll, we'll pop the link on the, the show notes is it the same with you angelica it's all linked yes. centrally same thing yes at the global level we always have a, a geo symposium where all the regions come together. But then at the regional this year, we will have the AmeriGeos Week. And the Geo Plenary I, um, this year is also going to be virtual. It was going to be in South Africa, but it, because of COVID, it's going to be virtual, I think, in November. At Afrigeo, we're looking to host the Afrigeo Symposium, where we want to bring all the African member countries to have the same conversations on, on all the thematic areas we focus on and also see how we can link better with the ongoing geo initiatives and take advantage of them to ensure that they, we can localize them to suit our needs. It's been really fascinating hearing about both organizations and everything that's happening like because of them and, and around them. Thank you, Phoebe, and thank you, Angelica. It's been absolutely wonderful. Wonderful talking to you. It's been fantastic. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Hello. Oh, sorry. Do you want me to redo it?
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.